0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and mentorship. Check it out at tkex.org. We've got a special edition today. We've got a roundtable discussion on a biopsychosocial approach to manual therapy. There have been some misconceptions about some of the messages with a BPS person-centered framework that manual therapy is horrible and evil and it should never ever be done in any particular context. So there's huge nuance to that. So I've gathered three of the best to discuss some of those nuances or details in this topic, this really juicy discussion topic. So we've got Toby Coy, Bertu Ripinen and Lauren Retica. I'm going to roll every R in this episode. So Hope you guys don't mind. And each of them have a individual podcast if you wanted to dive into their stories, which I would highly, highly recommend. I feel like we need a definition, first of all, of what we're talking about when it comes to manual therapy, just so we're not kind of talking about different things. So firstly, a definition of manual therapy for the purpose
1: of this discussion. I would say if, if I'm talking about manual therapy, I i am thinking about any hands-on technique that I'm using with the intention to reduce pain. And we can even widen it. It may be we're not doing to reduce pain, we're just doing it because it feels good. One way or another, it's something, it's a hands-on intervention that for us is a clinically significant part of our treatment process. And yeah, I think keeping it that broad should be sufficient. Some people may Kind of delineate between, say, tool-assisted manual therapy versus the hands, but I don't know for our purposes whether we really need to make that distinction. Yep, I think that sounds like a good start, and if there's any
0: um, clarifications as we go along, we'll we'll add them in. So then we talk about the operator versus the interactor model of healthcare, and this involves not just manual therapy, but all our interventions where we look at working with the person rather than doing things to our client or patient. So if we could have a quick definition of what those differences are.
2: I think with the interactive versus operator role, I think there's, there's two people involved in, in either interaction. So there's the client or the patient or the healthcare provider. And I think the difference comes in two forms. So it comes from, how the operator or how the clinician or the interactor views themselves so do they think that they're the person that it's their role to dictate how this goes and what they're going to be doing and is it what they think is the best healthcare options for the person is and then it's also the person who's seeking care and how they're perceiving who they're seeing to be so are they going in with the mindset of this is the person that's going to fix me or are they going into the same thing I'm really struggling here, I need some guidance. And those, they will be ever-changing in certain ways and different interactions will be different. And then you also have different balances. So you might be someone that's an, a more of an operator mindset or a, of a clinician, and you might have a client that might want something a bit different. And so I think there's a bit of an interchange in there.
0: We all agree on that one where, and, and in reference to, I originally saw it, uh, through our discussion with with Toby, actually uh, Jason Silvernell and Diane Jacobs' paper, twenty eleven, the therapist as interactor or the operator. So we're looking at the healthcare through the lens of either we're trying to fix someone's problem and the solution lies within the healthcare provider. Or it's more of a shared decision-making process where we find out together and we work alongside our patient and client to whatever health goal they have. All right, so with manual therapy, then we've got our definitions. How can we incorporate manual therapy within a clinical context through that interactor lens?
3: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good question danielle and i think that's that's the ultimate challenge that that we face because i i see kind of way as the operator being the more traditional if you will if you can use the word how i was at least personally trained and i think we all would would agree that to to the greater extent that's been uh, the case for you guys as well and and the majority of the people working within healthcare through the um, traditional biomedical lens that you know person comes with a symptom and it's our job to find what it is and then remove the cause (laughs) so on of of the pain so and manual therapy has been also traditionally seen as a part or of the operator approach in a sense that you are providing the the hands-on to first of all you know evaluate and find through you know hands-on examination what uh, you may perceive quote-unquote pain generator to be and then do whatever skill that you've been trained and you feel most appropriate in that so it is you know really it fits really well into the operator approach and the mindset but the challenge comes in where we would and again how I see the interactor model is more of a contemporary understanding of a emergent bias like a and a patient-centered approach and and how do you use something which is kind of <laughs> originally designed to remove the cause of pain within a biomedical model to a this sort of patient-centered approach where we are not our job would not be you know seen as the person who fixes it's rather the guy who is facilitating or the person who's facilitating the path towards the 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 person's goals Uh, and a meaningful so i personally have been struggled uh, myself to how do i fit this this hands-on approach into a more of a facilitator guiding a path approach rather than the approach that you, you would fix someone, which is ultimately often the case that more, more people perceive you when they come to see a manual therapist. They don't see you as the interactive, they see you more as the operator. So it's our job kind of to try and take the discussion away from that mindset and try to approach the conversation in a different way. But yeah, that's, that's a difficult. It's, it's a great question. And I personally have struggled with loads. And I think this is what we discussed last time, Daniel, was was that we would use, and I think many people now, when you look at the guidelines, recommendations for management of musculoskeletal pain, if we take the example of back pain, manual therapy, or any form of hands-on would be a adjunct to the first-line care, which would be education, advice, and recommendations to stay active, which is something that I feel that many of us therapists are actually not well-trained in. (laughs) You're not, you know, you're not suited so well to listen to people and and advise them and educate them because you've gone through the lens of the the operator model. So that's how I personally, in the past, have tried to fit in manual therapy as, okay, we're using this as adjunct and I've seen it as a way of providing a pathway to exercising or using, you know, moving in a state where someone is feeling less discomfort though they may be more comfortable but this is something that i just recently have been thinking a lot more and it's coming from listening to your discussion with I think it was with anthony barrack and also i've seen you speaking about this afterwards is what is exactly the message that you are sending to the person if you are telling them that you need a manual therapy first before you can start to exercise, and I've had this conversation with people that they've, they've come to see me that they need to be something to you know to be done to them first before they get this like pain-free window to start moving. And it is exactly as you said earlier: is it that giving the impression that exercising is pain-inducing? <laughs> it's is it creating issues that you need to tackle first before you can start exercising? So, but that puts a little really gray area, and we're like, what's the actual role of manual therapy? But where should we use that? And I'm not sure if I have the answer to that at the moment, I have to say. I might still use it, but uh, it's, it's really, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the uh, reasoning behind this. I have to be honest. I'm giving two examples. If I'm approaching someone who has had a persistent pain or like for a long time, which is the minority of people that I see, actually. But in those scenarios, manual therapy is, at least in my clinical reasoning, it's, it's at the very bottom end. It's because like they've had a, the problem, which, which is persistent, their pain is, is is definitely somewhere else that coming from the tissues. It's, it's really in how, how they respond to their pain, what their beliefs are, how the pain guides their behavior, you know, fear associated with pain, the uncertainty around it. And that's, again, something that you definitely not be able to manage in a manual therapy. And in those cases, it's, I'm not even sure if it's very helpful to, or, or if it's useful to even provide some pain relief. Because that's not the issue. It's, it's more about getting the people in and them to get towards their goals again. But whereas in a, say, flare-up or a recent onset of back pain where someone is having a sudden loading event or they're, they're doing something with their body physically and they get a trigger of pain and again we can go into those to discussion what's the difference between acute and a persistent pain and whether that's all the same but in those scenarios when someone is really like they can't properly move their back or they can initiate certain movements in those scenarios i think manual therapy for a quick temporary relief can be quite helpful if many of the movements that they're trying to do is that are painful but again i'm not trying to send the message that this is what you definitely would need at the start, or there's an issue that we are fixing. It's just like, okay, you're in a tremendous amount of pain. I can really see it and understand it. If there are certain ways like just make you feel a little bit easier, I'm more than happy to do it but let's again figure out the important stuff about how do we respond to the pain what does it mean and how should we approach it in the long run so it doesn't turn into a more of a longer term persistent pain and I like what uh, Dr. Peter Stilwell has said earlier is that we should manage every person with more recent onset or an acute episode as that they would potentially become like a persistent ongoing pain problem so it's really important how we frame that but in those scenarios I think just giving some form of relief if they're an excruciating amount of pain can be quite useful. But when it c- turns into a longer term problem, I think we shouldn't, as Anthony Beric said so well, we sh- shouldn't make the pain as the enemy. Like it's something that we should fear- be fearful of, we should avoid, and we should find ways to, you know, that that would guide how you move. We shouldn't make the, the pain as a, something that we are trying to avoid or see as the enemy. Rather, how can we live the best life and and do the things that are meaningful for us despite experiencing some symptoms. So it's, it's definitely more of a behavior change approach in that, in that scenario.
0: It's complex. And I think for any of us or anyone for that matter to claim that they have the answer, they would be lying because we don't have as much of a objective understanding based on the body of literature because there's so many different factors involved. There's the context that we're in. There's the idea of the short-term versus long-term benefits. There's the claim that it can be, there is a risk perhaps of some harm in applying certain interventions. But even then we can't pretend that there's a vacuum and we can't separate the intervention from that clinical interaction and from that decision-making process and from the next stages, the plan moving forward for that person's rehab after that session, what, what are they going to do to self-manage, for instance? So there's all these different factors in there. And I think we are not, we can't claim that it is bad to seek pain relief because otherwise that can be a message that might be interpreted from these discussions that we should never seek pain relief. And that's, it's always bad to seek pain relief. So, so maybe what's been helpful in previous discussions has been to steel man manual therapy and I'll probably get Toby to talk through this one.
1: So for anyone unfamiliar with the term, when you attempt to steel man something, it's an exercise that you go through where you attempt to make a strong argument. You present the strongest possible argument. For whatever it is, in this case, it's the use of manual therapy, and usually it serves a the purpose of making sure that whoever you're talking to is confident that you understand where they're coming from. So rather than picking the, the weakest reasons, in this case, using manual therapy, that that maybe not that many people would really use those reasons to begin with, but they're really easy to poke holes in. Rather than going for that kind of low-hanging fruit, it's more helpful to maybe look at it in a more rigorous and realistic way. What's a good argument in favor of manual therapy in this context? There's, I suppose there's a lot that can be covered, but if we're gonna keep on with the theme of the operator versus interactor, and this is something that came up in a conversation that Daniel and I and Gordon had recently is that a lot of the criticisms that you might level at at manual therapy, are more criticisms of an operator style of a therapeutic interaction and then they're not necessarily problems that are unique to manual therapy. So whilst it's true that you could hypothetically deliver a treatment that is very structurally focused, very tissue based that looks to make a specific pathoanatomical diagnosis and structure treatment around that and use manual therapy to let's say hypothetically reduce the tension around a let's say a chronically overloaded joint because you think somebody's chronic postural problems are driving their symptoms and using manual therapy to temporarily unload a a joint that you think's been overloaded. Anyway, whatever the reason is, you can provide any number of hypothetical scenarios that whereby manual therapy could be used, but these are all examples of treatment that is somewhat flawed because we might, in this contemporary setting, consider it to be an overly operator-focused treatment plan right and in that hypothetical setting perhaps the exercise prescription component would also be similarly structurally focused or pathoanatomical. and so if we look on the other side and say well can you provide manual therapy in a context in which you're providing you're fulfilling the role of an interactor as a therapist rather than operator i think the answer is yeah you can do it so what that looks like at least one way that it can look is With all the standard communication that you would use in a normal consultation, a lot of asking questions, a lot of trying to understand where people are coming from, why they've come in, why this is important to them. What their symptoms mean to them, both in the context of what they think is going on, but also how they impact on their day to day life. And then the manual therapy simply becomes another tool of interacting with the person in front of you. So it can be be a lot more explorative than prescriptive. So rather than saying, well, for this problem, I'm going to use this specific technique. You can say things like, well, I'm going to put my hands here, if that's okay with you, and we're going to see how that feels and how that changes your symptoms. And we're just going to discover whether this is good or bad, whether it's really nothing of note. And we're going to use that as another form of communication to probe perhaps the, the ideas that you've got about why something hurts to begin with, which can be unhelpful and which can be deconstructed in their own way with hands-on. Another way that it can be, broadly speaking, more patient-centric is that there's certainly value in asking people who come in what, what their expectations are. What do you expect to be getting from our session today? Which of course is just a good question to ask, but if it is the case that They have strong expectations that you'll be providing manual therapy and there's a lot of gray either way and it's a bit of a sliding scale but there's certainly a point in which it's respectful and and appropriate to let's say speak to somebody in the language that they're expecting right and use that as a starting point for you to start forming a shared understanding so you know treatment environment that we live in where expectations around manual therapy are quite complex and varied I think it can be patient centric to provide that as a starting point as well. As for, and I'll just briefly touch on arguments against manual therapy in terms of tissue specificity. I won't labor this too much because I, I think it kind of fits into the the whole like low hanging fruit or straw man arguments against manual therapy in the same, we could, for example, say that exercise therapy is no good because our structuralist models around why strengthening and conditioning is useful for pain relief have turned out to be inaccurate by the same token there's a lot of ideas that we've had over the years about manual therapy that have turned out to be pretty hilariously wrong but that doesn't that doesn't really speak to what a a modern session necessarily looks like and so it's important even as we I, i hope really dig into some of the weird philosophical implications of even yet yeah, starting out with manual therapy as, a, as an assumption that you would take into a session, keeping in the back of our minds that there are a lot of ways that it can be very reasonably carried out and you can provide quite, I think, sophisticated modern thoughtful care using manual therapy. It ends up being a lot more about the, the way that we coach it rather than the, the tool itself. As maybe some other small notes, it's relatively non-invasive, right? It does provide temporary, modest improvements in, in pain and in turn function outside of specific tissue based ideas, which we know we can kind of step away from. There's, I think, nothing wrong with saying that there's a moderate amount of evidence to suggest that it actually is effective in, in this narrow scope for pain relief. So, using it for the purposes of short term pain relief, I think, is evidence based.
0: Also, oh, what I'm getting then is that it can be a a window of opportunity is the common term for its use so it can be pain relieving it can be helpful for some people to perhaps discover something that they didn't know about their nervous system how maybe some ideas of their pain experience can be explored through the context of touch and through the power of touch through a bit of an experiment and how we can work with the person with their ideas, their expectations, their beliefs, using manual therapy through that lens versus the I'm going to find the problem for you and I'm going to modify your symptoms with my magic hands, and, and then you'll that will be the solution to all your ailments. Lauren, wanted to get your input on the discussion of when you would use manual therapy or through that kind of interactive model. How do you see it as helpful?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think when I first started to understand all of this a bit more, my first thought was sort of acute patients, manual therapy, good, chronic, bad, and that's basically it. And that was the extent of it. So I was like, okay, well, that's how it can kind of work in with what I've already been learning for all these previous years. And then what I'm learning now, I think that's how I can sort it in pretty neatly. And I think I'm starting to get to more of a understanding of it becoming Again, you know, question: What is acute? What is chronic? And, and all of that. Uh, for me, it's more about looking at someone, how distressed someone is by their problem, right? So someone's coming in, and they, you can visibly see how distressed their issue is causing them, and to the point where you can barely even take a case history or a, to have a discussion with them because they're just clouded by pain. And so that might be an acute person. That might be a, a acute on chronic flare. It could be anything. But it's like, in that case, I do think a manual therapy approach could potentially help that person get out of that that level of distress to get them to a point where they're kind of a bit more open to have a chat now that's not saying that it's the only option but it is one if you're trying to you know you can't even get get a proper conversation going because they're so clouded by the pain that they're experiencing and and also like the extra meaning of it if you're seeing someone that's well, is quite acute they're thinking like am i meant to be here or am i meant to go to the hospital and you know it's it's that kind of level of stuff and so i think look it's for me I've, I've mentioned this in the podcast with you daniel where it's like for me a manual therapy would be a it's a learning experience so you know you could if you're working on more of an operator model if you got someone's symptoms better in half now you could be like oh gee like i've done a really good job here or it's like wow how awesome is this person's nervous system and body that they can in 30 minutes, adapt so quickly where they were previously such a, a highly intense, pain, distressed state, and in such a short, short amount of time, we've been able to get back to there. And I think that is nuancing language and how you communicate with your person that you're seeing, whether your patient, your client, and also how you're seeing the interaction going. At the same time, you can be very easily tempted to think that the interaction and everything that's happened in it because of you, and feel really good about it. But at the end of the day is that really the case? I don't really know. And it is tempting because it's like, we all love an ego stroke, but I think that's kind of where I'm starting to go into the next step of my thoughts.
0: Yeah, we go into that dichotomous black or white kind of thinking that makes things a lot simpler, but it takes away the complexity and then the nuance. And it gets us into our own kind of camps and our own ways of thinking if, if we're quite concrete and immovable and that takes away that flexibility that we need when interacting with a human we need to be able to take in the the complexities their ideas their understanding and respecting the context and there's so many things involved as what i'm hearing is when people are highly 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 distressed and they're so they're in a certain state that they need that grounding to get back to the present moment because otherwise they're in such a panic mode that they'll be off to the hospital or there's some other kind of extreme action needed on their behalf to relieve them of the pain and there is some real suffering there so one of the ways to calm them down and get them back to the present moment is through our touch and through that meaningful validating reassuring human to human contact that they've probably missed or they they just need that the meaning attached to that manual therapy for them is so significant. What I got as well was when we're using it in that way, it can then be helpful to use it as a way to get them to see, ah, their body is a lot more adaptable and resilient than they thought. So it's not only the, the tool, it's the explanation
2: involved. 100%, 100%. And I think, and also to even add another element to it, I think potentially with everything that's happened this year with COVID, maybe that's maybe have some pondering about our roles as health healthcare professionals. But at least in Australia, where allied health's role is to offset the burden on like primary healthcare, so the hospitals and what it might be at the moment in Melbourne, we're in a current state where you're only allowed to see a face-to-face consult if it's deemed an, an urgent or critical matter. So basically, if they weren't to see you, they would have to escalate it, and it's like, well, that is the nature of allied health, and so that to a certain degree, sometimes that might be our role. It might not be our role for every single person that walks through the door, but there might be that one in a hundred that's coming in that's, that needs it. And, and I think that's okay. We don't have openly discussions about that. So people just assume that we just throw everything into the no, no touching basket, but there's, there's a lot of in between.
0: My biggest
3: concern with the use of manual therapy is is what the individual who is, you know, who we perform and use manual therapy is what is their actually like what's their takeaway of what happened. And me personally, as a chiropractor, I was trained primarily on spinal manipulation, so high velocity, low amplitude thrust manipulation. So a uh, little bit of mobilization, but um, um mostly m- manipulation. That's where I would say I'm most confident in in, in if I'd use some form of manual therapy. But again, I think that brings a lot of, again, a whole lot of expectations and how that, like what's the the person's takeaway of what's happening within massage. But as a a manipulation, often there's a perception that something is not moving properly or is out of alignment. And then when you do a high velocity, low amplitude thrust and you hear the, you know, the audible popping sound and it it really makes a lot of sense that now something has quote unquote fixed. And often as as Toby was saying there, we're not we're not saying that spinal manipulation doesn't provide short-term pain relief. That's exactly what it what it can provide. And, and I think we have modern evidence to to say that as, as what we said, but when the person experiences that, it's so easy for them to make their own assumptions what happened. And I've I've had this experience in the past where we've done a lot of different things involving discussion and education, advice and going through movement exploration, behavioral learning type of strategies. And then where you sort of fit in the manual therapy, it's it often still, despite a lot of what we what else we've said, that's their lived experience, what happened, they got an instant relief, and, and if their their prior beliefs are around anatomy and biomechanics and something is faulty and now you know it has been fixed, it's a really difficult you know place to to you know alter and shift those beliefs because they are in a sense feeling it, and even if they they may you know you may say something else and what what it does they might not take that on board. And, and again, we know the statistics of how much people actually take from discussions within a clinical interaction. It may be very little, as, as little as you know, 20% or even in, even lower, but it's again, what they formulate, what happened is, is I think what, what is quite important. So personally, the most important thing for me is the narratives around spinal pain based issue. I don't want to bring the message across that uh, this is something that they would need. I'm, that manipulation is a passive form of movement You could indeed do the very same thing actively by yourself and a similar type of relief but in some cases that may be challenging and difficult for you where we can assist with with the hands-on but i think maybe it's within the form of manual therapy that i personally use but (laughs) i think the spinal manipulation itself brings a whole lot of expectations and for people what happened and uh, what they will take on from from there on and uh, how that will form their beliefs moving forward and what what's going to happen when they Experience a, a pain flare up in the future, and how will that dictate and guide their behavior? So, again, I think the narratives around manual therapy is personally for me the most important things. And I will try to come across very clear that we are not doing anything in terms of a fixing pathoanatomical model standpoint. So, it doesn't create some form of reliance or false expectations moving forward. And again, not saying that it could, you know, it can be beneficial in the the short term but i think it's it's more so what's the long-term message that they will take from it which what is important
0: definitely it's um one of the things we can't control right what they actually leave what they tell their family and friends what they take from the 30 minutes of our session where we could be explaining for 25 minutes that this deadlift is not the be-all end all cure for your back pain, and it's it's not because you're weak. But then they take away, oh, they need to do deadlifts for the rest of their life, otherwise they're gonna get pain in the future. This is now an injury prevention prehab tool for them, and they're just doing deadlifts for the purpose of pain relief. Even though we've told them for 25 minutes that's nothing to do with that. So there's only so many things that we can control within interactions with another human. We have to respect that they have their own opinions and they have their own takeaways. So then it's an idea of how can we choose certain interventions within our lens of an operator model that perhaps leave them feeling as empowered as possible or at least reduce the risks of them suddenly developing a dependence on us, whether that might be exercise cues, whether that might be specific knowledge for movements to do or whether that be for a specific manual therapy technique so how can we reduce our risk of dependence and increase their empowerment
1: gosh there's so much within that everyone said so much and there's so much to unpack i think it's fascinating to to dwell on the idea of what the overall message of an intervention might be and even within that there are a lot of different ways that you might think about what the message is. For example, you could think about it in terms of the message surrounding what your treatment actually did. So why it actually had an effect, what's going on, why when, when they rubbed my, my back, did it feel better? So you can speculate about what message you're sending there. And then we can also speculate about the message that it sends that we included that within our treatment anyway everyone listening to this has their own average treatment length but they tend to be shorter than you would probably like and I think it it does send a message when you set aside a specific amount of time to work on something the person in front of you knows that the time is limited and so I think showing that it's a priority enough for you to include it certainly implies that it's a necessary part of the session so there's that in terms of the underlying message there's also the point that you raised about retention which has two sides to it as well which is the amount that they've retained but also the conclusions they draw from what they retained there's this psychological concept called naive realism which is the erroneous belief that if you talking to somebody about some topic that you have an opinion on but they disagree with you it's the erroneous belief that if they just had all the information that you had, they would share your opinion as well. So they only disagree with you because they're regrettably misinformed. They're ignorant and you're not. And that's why there's a fundamental disagreement. But it's interesting to think of, interesting thing for me to think of in a healthcare interaction, because we think about these ideas about retention of information and Within that is this idea that probably if the more they retain, the more the, the closer our opinions and values will, will kind of overlap, which is true, probably generally, but especially for things like manual therapy. But for all sorts of things in a clinical context, we may just have simply different underlying values. For example, one value that is quite distinct between us and, and the people we're working with in the context of manual therapy, is the enjoyment they get out of the clinical interaction. It's plausible to think of somebody who actually just really enjoys receiving manual therapy, having very different opinions about the necessity or the usefulness of of the tool, quite separate to ideas that we would have about its clinical importance, simply because of the the different role that it has for them in in a very purely subjective capacity. The experience of the interaction is different. And so they might actually understand 100% of the information that we're giving them, but still decide that they want the manual therapy for that reason. Interesting things to think about. One more thing that I like to think about, which kind of comes back to this idea about consistency in the narrative, is that for me, the strategy I tend to try and use is to maximize consistency with everything that I do and recommend. So I am very wary of sending mixed messages, especially if we take to heart this idea that maybe only a small percentage of, of what we, we talk about is going to linger. It helps if everything you do and say can really be boiled down to the one sentence core message. And it, it's not impossible, but it does hinder if you start to, want, start to think that perhaps my core message is undermined by the thing that I did first which also was very emotionally resonant because it had the, the, the wow factor. And that's a tricky thing to play around with. And as Daniel knows, I think that means that often it kind of behooves us to really aggressively reframe what, what we're doing with the manual therapy if we choose to do it, and really put the communication front and center and quite aggressively myth bust with manual therapy just to to maintain coherence to a central narrative, coherence to the the key point, their one takeaway. Because their one takeaway is almost never going to be something that that is actually relevant to the manual therapy that you chose to do. You know, like at the end of the day, if you think about what you're recommending to your client, that's not really part of it. If you chose to do it, it, it was something that you did to help them get by. So I think that consistency is important. But that is my opinion. And I get sometimes a bit obsessive. hard line about the key message i can get quite black and white at these things and i understand that other people don't have that same set of values and it's easy to assume that our the average client is less aware than they really are and a lot of people can understand a bit of nuance and they don't all necessarily assume that manual therapy is doing all sorts of things that we would normally worry about and it's useful to think about those people as well yeah maybe we need
0: to tailor our interventions, our approach, our narratives to where the person's coming from, to their expectations, to their previous experiences, to perhaps any yellow flags or other prognostic factors, the risk of chronicity, their level of catastrophization, if they're drawn to certain negative, threatening messages, they're at higher risk already of walking away, taking away something that might be deemed as perhaps causing further harm or nocebo so that's these are all considerations to to consider when when using any intervention let alone manual therapy i think that's
1: that's an important point point. one more thing i was thinking about the concept of of buy-in which comes in quite frequently with manual therapy and allied health in general i assume but it made me think about I suppose I have a an odd experience compared to maybe a lot of people listening to this podcast because I'm a massage therapist but I've never found it that difficult to have the conversation around why somebody why manual therapy and like a massage based approach is maybe not the best thing for somebody and this is all anecdotal but I find those conversations pretty easy to have people are usually quite open to to alternatives and so but Because I'm not a physiotherapist or a chiropractor or an osteopath, I can't directly relate to the unique trouble of coming in and having to provide a a kind of quote-unquote mixed service and people having expectations about how you might split your time up. I can't speak to that directly, but as somebody who has had a lot of really enjoyable conversations, referring, getting people to not see me and instead see a physiotherapist, and that's apparently going pretty well, I'm interested in what you think about how much we really need these tools in general for buy-in so for example if you look at other healthcare providers doctors get great doctors can get fantastic and I honestly hate the word buy-in so let's just say trust they form wonderful trusting relationships with their patients they can go on for very for a number of years and they don't need manual therapy there are all sorts of contexts in which we create trusting great like communicative relationships, professional relationships without the need of manual therapy. But, and I understand that it is different in the the sense that people have an expectation that you provide it. But it is also easy to put it on a bit of a pedestal when it comes to other forms of, comparing to other forms of communication. And I really think that the majority of the time, the the quote unquote buy-in that you could get from satisfying somebody's expectations for manual therapy you could really blow out of the water by subverting their expectations and actually being an extremely good listener, which in my experience, people tend to sadly not experience a whole lot in healthcare. And I've had way more positive comments from people about my listening ability than my ability with my hands, which is maybe a damning indictment of my ability as a massage therapist. But I think it says something about buy-in and trust, and I wanna know what you think.
3: What you brought there up, so is is very interesting because that's that's kind of how I used to used to see it and I used to believe the building of buying or trust would be around how skilled you are and people would you know speak about the the person who does all these the best techniques or is the quickest or fastest with their hands or can crack every single joint in the person's body and like those would be the things that okay that that makes a great clinician and and I as I said I used to kind of Think and believe that way, but now what I've already seen is that it really isn't about the the skill. I've I've got a similar type of comments where people have said that, oh, like this is the you know the, the first time that I actually feel that I was able to tell everything and uh, I was listened, and so the listening is definitely a major and a key factor. But I think also providing a idea and a goal and journey. That fits the person in in what they think is appropriate, and again, that comes from the listening. Because if you only assume that, even if they may they have this problem in, in say part of the back end, they would you know come to see someone who could fix it. But if you just assume that that's the way that they're perceiving that you just you know need the best hands to correct whatever is causing the pain, you will be misled about that for, for a great deal. I think if you can ask better questions first of all more open-ended questions. And I think this comes down to the skills of motivational interviewing and everything. Uh, That's the startup approach, which I think is really, really important, which unfortunately is not something that we've formally trained in to a great extent as as a manual therapist. But I think if you can really open the dialogue and get their understanding of where they are and where they want to go, and you fit into an action plan that fits their desires, their goals, I think that's the second thing so listening and providing a plan of action before you even touch with your hands and if I've been able to do those at the start of the session or, or before any sort even if that may involve manual therapy but if I've done that before any hands on I think you're on a great way to developing a successful and a great therapeutic alliance or relationship with the patient and are in a way towards better outcomes and they will also see you as a clinician that they can trust so that's from a little bit of experience that i've already seen when I, once i've transitioned into that and uh, not assuming what they want but actually dive into more of their journey and their story and try to provide something an action plan that makes sense to them which they probably have not got before if this is an ongoing pain issue they probably haven't been like it's interesting if you ask some you know patients that if they've actually had sit together with the clinician to set goals like what are your goals have you provided any sort of goals that would explain you, or, or have a discussion that would explain your situation and sort of steps you need to move forward? And they actually just look at you with their eyes glazed, like, what are you even talking about? So if you can establish those two things that fits the person, I think that's, you know, you're going to build a trust and a buy-in a lot better than the new technique you just learned on a, on a weekend course.
2: Yeah, and I think coming back to what you're saying about, well, I find a really great point about GPs and how you can have great relationships with them and they very rarely would touch you other than for an mm-hmm. assessment of some sort. And um, I think on top of that, even just outside of in healthcare, it's like some of the best interactions you have in your whole life. in fact, almost all of them don't ever involve having to be touched. Like you can really connect with someone and get a great understanding with someone without ever without having to do anything physically to them. And so I guess to I would question if you're, explanation of why you need to do it do manual therapy is to create buy-in for a client it's like why do you need buy-in do you need buy-in for the client because you feel like that's a measure of an effective treatment so have they bought what you're selling and therefore is is that an effective outcome for the interaction and for the client um and what is your definition of buy-in so what is for you, what do you think, how do you take from that interaction that you know you've gotten boarding for it? So you, you might have thought you've sold them a really great idea, but at the end of the day, has it even gotten them closer to where they need to be? So there's I think it's the type of thing it's like you can really nitpick and keep going down the line and, and trying to nut out what exactly you define buy-in to be. My other question is if you're saying, oh I need to do it, I need to do manual therapy to create buy-in, but you're talking to them for two minutes and then getting them on the table, have you really explored all possible other options? in that scenario i think that's where um again another question so it's like have you what have you explored what other ideas have you explored um in terms of an interaction before that and why have you ended up in that position of that's your approach
1: yeah completely agree if you're talking about buy-in it certainly apply implies that you're selling something pretty hard but if you're having to work that hard to get somebody on your side is what you're selling really aligned with what they want to begin with? Or are you just pushing your own values onto a patient? And the only way you can really know that is with a fantastic conversation. And as you've said, that the hands-on takes time. And you've got so little time, surely a great thing to prioritize is that shared understanding, rather than trying to jump in with, with the magic trick that will make them trust you You can almost, and this is, I'm going to be very uncharitable for a moment, but you can almost try and use it to circumvent this shared understanding and instead go, well, look, I understand what's going on because I can affect this change. So trust me, this is what's best for you. And hopefully everyone listening to that cringes a little bit because that's not patient-centric. Perhaps if we were to pick a better
0: word, would it be engagement in the process? Would it be sticking with the journey Of healthcare, would that sit better with you, Lauren?
2: I think it needs to be something that's more dynamic than something that it's it's someone's bought something and they've taken it on and that's the transaction done and now they're sold. For instance, personally, and I'm sure other people have had experience where things might be going really well with someone, and then sometimes your relationship might not take the best term for whatever reason, and and that's okay. That can happen because of a variety of reasons, but. It's a constant continuation of an engagement with someone, or it's an ever evolving process. I don't think, in one initial consult, the first time you've ever met someone, you can get buy in and they're sold and they're going to go on a journey for you for the next X amount of time until their things gone over. I don't think that's how it works. I think you have different, you might have little windows of opportunity to create trust. And that might be the first consult. They might be a few months in. That could be, I don't know. Sometimes you have clients where you just never get anything from them and that's okay too.
0: As for what I've come across, it seems like building on how psychologists, psychotherapists build trust within a therapeutic context, considering it's outside of their scope for the most part to use touch. I think it's it's a blessing to be able to add the power of touch for reassurance and that comfort though it seems like the ability to be with someone when they're experiencing emotional distress and having the time, committing that time to being present in that moment shows a lot of compassion and care. And I wonder if that's maybe some of the ingredients within manual therapy that is often not really talked about. Just having that one-on-one time and, and guiding someone through something that is seriously emotionally distressing and it's one of the tools that we are taught and we are most comfortable with when a patient is coming in and they can't move because they're in so much pain and they're thinking of going to the hospital and they're thinking that they're really really damaged and that's what we've been trained to do using our touch and our manual skills and I wonder if we were to not say that we are psychologists or psychotherapists however in a similar way, recognise that they would also have similar tools to develop that therapeutic trust and relationship without using their hands.
3: Yeah, that's. I think that's super important. But it's it's something that it's not something that you spend so, a lot of time in school in those situations where you actually need them. Like we had a a motivational interviewing course but that was in the midway of my journey to to the outpatient clinic as an intern and its relevance and role was not discussed in the context of persistent pain or even even in an acute pain or or the term we want to use where someone is coming in with an excruciatingly distressing pain that they're really worried about it's like how do you how do you first of all listen and discuss and talk to that person and really understand where they're coming from and be, you know, show empathy and really validate their experience. And that's definitely not, you know, oh, that's a common thing that people report when you look at some of the the studies from both physiotherapists and chiropractors, how well are they prepared to address some of these psychological and social factors? And, And people typically report being really out of the scope of their practice. <laughs> that's like one of the biggest barriers. And they're, they're like, I'm not competent enough to do this. Again, we've spoken about this, you really don't have to be a psychologist in order to, to be able to just listen to a person and hear where they're coming from. But uh, that seems to be a huge barrier for people, like not even knowing how to do it. And I think that's, a, again, a huge limitation of some of the educational programs that you're not put onto, onto that environment in people early on to just hear them out and, and listen what they have to say. I think that's there's a huge limitation in our education, which is something that this, if you want to use the term psychologically informed practice, is something that those concepts should be implemented more into the curriculum early on in people. Like I think one of the modules that we had, like a, a behavioral science type of module where the, the biopsychosocial model was introduced, that was in year one way before any of the orthopedics and where we learned about pathoanatomical diagnosis and all of that. So when you enter the clinic, you're fresh on learned all the orthopedic tests, you're fresh on learning all the diagnosis and all the manual skills. And those are the things that you enter the clinic with as the operator mindset, like I'm going there, I'm gonna have this superhero code behind me and I'm gonna fix all the issues that the person is coming with with my hands and the valuable skills when it came to understanding the biopsychosocial model of pain and and even a little bit of the motivational interviewing concepts, those have washed away from your mind once you enter the clinic because you're you're trained and you're examined on the more quote-unquote biomechanical skills, which I think it should be the completely other opposite way around, in my opinion. Because again, those are the more important, as we've discussed, as I've, I've uh, heard it from our discussion with, <laughs> despite the lag that I've uh, experienced, I think those are the things that we've you know highlighted the more importantly is, is the listening and the building the relationship and how that trust em- kind of develops is from those interactions with people. But I think many, many therapists um, are just very incompetent and that's a really great term you hear from the research the term out of their scope of practice which it shouldn't be so i think there's a huge changes that we need in in the curriculum and education programs as well
0: absolutely there's the more discussions i have with clinicians the more i hear about this exact same theme that there's a disconnect between what they are learning in terms of the different subjects and topics and then their actual the implementation of that in practice whether that might be in their prac exams or in their placements, how there is a disconnect between on one side, they're learning about these very much behavioral therapies, the idea of pain science. And on the other hand, they're learning about certain tools and interventions that are taught in a way that's through the operator model. So then on that topic, because I've got this incredible opportunity to talk to a massage therapist and osteopath and a chiro, what would you guys recommend to bridge that gap and if you were giving advice to manual therapists out there what kind of courses would you recommend
3: i just like to say one more thing on that it's reflecting really on because like for example in the in my final year before the clinical placement the of so practical exams that we had was like you're timed uh, for say eight minutes and here's the case here's the symptoms that the person experiencing is like what's the physical examination that you would do, like perform an examination and outline a treatment plan. And obviously there was elements of history taking, but those were just, it was just through the lens of, yeah, I need need to find what's what's the issue. I need to, the the symptoms are driving the process and I need to find out. It wasn't about, hey, let's sit down for however long it is that you need to hear the person and ask reflective questions back. And now you would, you know, hear what's the best questions to ask to hear their full experience and story. So definitely practical exams more so around that side would be hugely important. And I think concepts such as motivational interviewing, definitely acceptance and commitment therapy, definitely more so around the listening and talking side of things rather than, you know, that, that, all the manual skills therapies. And I'm I'm sure that that will also come into our discussions about whether we should do any CPD courses and what type of courses. And I definitely say that I wouldn't pick up the manual therapy courses. And I think the skills that you learn in school, those will be enough in in terms of hands-on skills, but more so would be the, again, if we use the term psychologically informed practice and the concept around that and more concepts from behavioral and health psychology.
0: I think
2: having discussions with other fellow friends that are clinicians and talking about how, well, I guess, my approach to care. And the question is always like, I can't see how you can do a consult and not touch them for 30 minutes. Like, what do you do in that time? Like, how do you fill that time with just talking? And it's like, well, it's not hard but it does require a bit of confidence and a bit of vulnerability and it requires a lot of things to be okay with before you can sort of take that bit of a leap and I think I can definitely understand why clinicians struggle with that so I guess you know to a certain degree there's lots of hot topic buzzwords like your act and your motivational interviewing and you know you can find a million courses on those and I I definitely think they're worthwhile I think if you potentially bit wild but if you've got the the money to and if you're you're comfortable doing it even doing courses that you know you're not going to love I think it's a really good way of, of reaffirming that how you feel about a topic I'm not even going in with the mindset of like I'm just going to be like question everything in this course and be that arsehole it's like expose yourself to it and you might be surprised but you might also just be able to get a bit of an idea behind the scenes of why someone thinks a certain way I've told Daniel this story but I did a, a dry needling course and for me doing the dry needling course was enough for me to go I never want to do dry needling because my own experience was it was like I hated it and I don't want to do so that to someone else now someone else might do that course and think I love that and I want to give that experience to someone else and, and that's okay too but I think you kind of need to experiment a bit to know what you like and what you don't like and to find what works with you again some people will find that the taking more of a CBT approach doesn't really work with their personality type it doesn't really fit with how they would normally naturally interact with another human being and that's okay too but You won't know that unless you kind of give it a bit of a go. And if you finish that and go, oh, I don't really love it. I don't mind the approach. You might take some things from it that you do like, but I think it's worth just getting as much experience in different ways and being open to things, being ready to take on whatever learning is, is, is offered to you through doing it.
1: Yeah, totally agree with both of your points. I guess what I would add is if somebody has listened to this and they are maybe a new grad or they're, for whatever reason, they're not super confident in their hands-on skills. I guess there are two questions that you could ask. One would be, what sort of courses should I take? And the other one would be more broadly, how can I get better at doing this hands-on stuff? And I think it's definitely a great thing to try and improve in all aspects of your work. And so even if you decide that manual therapy for the most part is only a very small part of what you do, I think you still wanna be good at, at everything that you do. And for me, being good at manual therapy is much more about putting the other person at ease than it is about the technical details of how you apply certain techniques. So I'll just quickly fire off some things that I think are worth thinking about. In terms of skills that are good to think about and scrutinizing yourself and just reflecting on how you think you stack up, it can be really good to know how comfortable you are applying different kinds of pressure. And again, that relates to how comfortable you feel, but more appropriately, or more importantly, is are you really comfortable making sure that somebody else is at ease whether you're putting in a very light amount of pressure or quite a bit of pressure. I think that's important. How confident are you communicating about your manual therapy while you're doing it? So this is stuff like explaining what you're going to do, checking in to see how they feel. Are you comfortable asking, having a conversation with somebody, asking them how something feels, or do you worry that that might undermine your authority? Do you wonder when you ask somebody, Oh, how does it feel when I do this? Do you, Feel that maybe they might wonder whether you know what you're doing at all, right? I think being comfortable around that kind of communication can be a good thing to work on. And back to the pressure thing specifically, think about if we were to really simplify things, you can either be in the camp that uses quite a lot of pressure, or you can be comfortable going either way. In my experience, it takes a lot more confidence, humility and I think just general sophistication of your approach to be able to provide something that is very minimally invasive, relaxing, and often not at all what somebody would expect if they think you're gonna get in there and bust up knots, right? And because not doing that goes against people's expectations, the easiest thing to do is to lean into what people expect, which leads both to practitioners, and I'm sure you've all met that person everyone jokes about being a sadist because they, they really like to make their patients squirm, but we all know they just do it because it's for the best. I think a lot of the time that's born from a lack of confidence early on, but knowing that, well, I'm not super comfortable with this hands-on, but people know that the more pressure I put in, the better the result will be. And you end up leaning into that and that ends up being all you can do, which can have some troubling side effects for your Trajectory as a clinician, and I think leads to the really distressing burnout that you see in all allied health professions that utilize manual therapy. A lot of us don't tend to last very long. The stress, the physical stress of the job, ends ends up being what most people cite. So, anyway, how comfortable are you with pressure? Are you comfortable with the idea of not using a lot of pressure and talking about it? And are you comfortable checking in and seeing how the person in front of you is really responding? how they feel when you're doing things, or do you feel like you need to lean into your authority and just do it um, and not question it too much because you worry what, they, what that might make them think? Reflecting on that, I think, is really helpful for getting better. It's a way more helpful than, than doing specific courses because, again, the most important thing that you can do, I think, during manual therapy is put somebody at ease, find out what feels good to them, find out what feels bad, work in the direction of what feels good and be comfortable explaining why that's a sensible thing to do. You often won't learn that in a course, and courses are super expensive. One reason you could do a course is to get the experience of somebody who is very comfortable with manual therapy. I would pick a course where they're doing light work because they're even more impressive because they're really good at putting you at ease when you're on the table. I wouldn't do it to learn any specific technique. I would do it so I could have an experience of what it's like being the person receiving this really skillful, soothing care. But the best thing you can really do to get better is just to get a friend. Get a coworker, a friend, anyone, practice on a table, practice applying pressure and and having a constant dialogue with them. That sort of practice you can't even do during a course anyway, because it's technique by technique, the way that the time is structured is not conducive to it. But um, it's that form of familiarity I would encourage people to pursue.
3: I'm glad you said that. Toby, and I I think you articulate things just so well, but I agree with you on that 100%. And I think that is is what makes a a skilled clinician in terms of their hands-on or manual therapy skills. It's not the amount of techniques that they can provide to particular types of joints. Because again, if we look at the evidence, we don't have the data to say that one form of manual therapy approach would be better or superior to another, or even looking at joint by joint segmental specific manipulations that would be better in terms of that you're trying to apply it into a specific site compared to a more generalized type of manipulation. Again, we don't have the data. So it like, based on the evidence, it would not even like, it would not support or you learning all these specific techniques and different angles and using different types of contacts, et cetera. Cause it's, it's just, again, a more just a general approach is just as effective. But again, where I think where the skill lies is what you said, is how do, how do you make someone feel at ease? The amount of pressures that you use, the way that you explain things that is you know, reassuring and makes them feel, like, okay, this is, you know, sounds totally reasonable and this makes sense to me. And, and again, that they leave up with a great experience by having that manual therapy done to a person. So I think those are really, really important in highlighting the fact of what makes a skilled clinician. But what I said back to my point is that you learn the basic skills in terms of the technique-wise in school. So you don't have to go in all these different technique classes to learn more because the, the basic skills in terms of whether it was a spinal manipulation or mobilization, you will learn those. So just be more efficient in a way that it feels nice to the person and is reassuring and they get a nice experience from it is, is more important, definitely, by, by uh, for the, the how many hundred different techniques you learn. I think ultimately those are a waste of money and a clinician wouldn't
0: need it. So what I'm hearing is respecting the interactor model, how can we upskill in ways that we can gain rapport and trust and engagement to be present with a fellow human being and get comfortable being uncomfortable? One of the things that you mentioned Lauren is some of your colleagues and our colleagues as well in terms of every profession. Having these uncomfortable but crucial conversations and knowing how to navigate them is one of the, the biggest skills in an interaction with a fellow human. They're not just a, a spine. They're not just a, a body part that we're treating. There's a human attached to that body part. So how can we develop a therapeutic relationship with someone, creating that buy-in as well in the process whilst still practicing the way we want to practice, being the clinician that we want to be and reducing a bit of burnout along the way?
1: I think the main thing is that, I I think we've established that there's a lot of nuance here and it's a very rich vein to mine, um, thinking about why we do or don't use manual therapy. And there's no hard answer one way or the other. But I think the key thing that we seem to keep coming back to is the incredible importance of, of communication. And that seems to make or break a lot of this stuff. And then the more we think about communication, the more it may be, at least for me, helps me make those hard decisions about, well, is manual therapy really necessary in this case? In the time I've got, I could use it, certainly, and it wouldn't be crazy to do it, but there are other options. And which are the ones that line up most clearly with the message that I want to communicate?
3: I think on the with the topic of communication, um, if you look at something that I found really important and powerful is now that people are pushing more you know podcasts and articles and viewpoints editorials etc., where they're using patient voices i don't think i have any single time read that someone would say that the crucial thing that made the person better was that one specific technique (laughs) it was that someone finally understood where i was coming from they provided a sensible plan of action they reassured me and they provided education on the topic. And now with the self-behavioral skills and knowledge that I've left with these clinical interactions of how many there are, but with a, and often there brings the conversation of a trusted physio or a trusted chiropractor, someone that they trust. And with what they've learned, they've now incorporated them into the activities of daily living and their daily life moving forward. And now where they are in control of their situation moving forward. And again, huge part of that is communication and education. It's, it's not the specific technique. And I've never seen that anywhere from these, you know, persistent pain stories from patient voices, which again I highlight they're extremely valuable. And I think Daniel, you've had some really good ones in the uh, the knowledge exchange podcast as well. So,
2: I think you know, there's a lot of nuance and there's so many considerations. So you can understand why people get very overwhelmed by it all so i think at the end of the day you you can only really do the best you have to offer someone so you know you can think of it as if you have 30 minutes 45 minutes now however long your consults are with someone in that time what's the best possible thing you could offer that person to help them or and and to add an element to that if say this person was your family member your loved one how would you want them to be treated by their health professional i think if you if you come at it from that at least you're doing better than you're doing your best you can you can do in that instance and I think keeping an open dialogue with other practitioners whether or not you may 100% agree with what they do or not then I think that's that's okay I think it's healthy to have conversations and 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 talk through things I think they'll say that you know you often have more in common with someone that you think that you think you don't have much in common with at all so I think continuing conversations with health professionals and and learning from each other I think that's really the best way forward.
0: Awesome. I love these kind of collaborative podcasts where we can discuss some of the nuances and it's not so black and white. So thank you lady and gentlemen for the discussion and I'm sure there'll be plenty more to come and you've stimulated some interesting interesting viewpoints and discussion topics. So thank you all until next time.